When you think through the moments of your life that most shape you, that make you who you are, that, that shape your soul, what are, what are the moments that stand out in your mind? What are the relationships, the, the memories that, that you carry with you? Um, I thought I'd share one. I, Medina, Ohio. The greatest show in wrestling, clearly. Not a humble name, but that's where I was at. I was wrestling high school back then. And I was in this match that I was um, not supposed to win. I was supposed to lose this match, and I was, living up to expectations. Um, <laughs> finished the second round, and I am down by five points. But, but there's this turning point in the match where I could see that I, I, I had this guy. I did. I mean, he was beating me by five points, but, but something had switched in him. I could tell that I, I, I could do something. And the coach looked at me, took me to the side, and said... Paul, I'm, I'm not going to bore you with wrestling details here, but you should just know that there's the, the way you get the big points, obviously, is you turn their back to the mat. And I just couldn't do this. Nobody could do that to this guy. But the coach knew that I could take him down. And that's where you, you just get him to the mat and then you let him go. And so every time you do that, you get two points, but every time you let him go, he gets a point. So in order to win the match, I was going to have to take him down five times in two minutes. And at that point, I had never done that to anyone in any match. And the coach looked at me and said, Paul, five times. And I went out there, not knowing what to expect, but the first one came really easy. (laughs) Took him down, pushed him away. And suddenly the coach was like, yeah, one. Then about 20 seconds later, I had to do it every 25 seconds. I did it again. Pushed him away. The third time, all the people in the crowd that were there from my school started cheering. And, uh, and then the fourth time happened. And this is, uh, we went out of bounds. And if you've ever watched like Olympic wrestling or whatever, you know, this is the optional position. This means I'm going to push him away and I'm going to go do the exact same thing that I just did. Like everyone's cheering. But you, you know what I remember from that moment? At that point, everyone's excited. Is Paul going to win or not? Like this is it. We're now at a tie game. And if he gives him this point, like, the guy, other guy's going to win if he doesn't take him down. And so we're at this point, and you know what I remember for that? I remember looking up to the stands, and my father, uh, you'd, you'd have to know my dad. My dad is a good man, but he's not demonstrative. Um, I'm pretty sure at that point in my life, I had never seen my dad cheer for anything ever. Like, he was basically supportive. He was a good dad, but I had never seen him cheer I mean, he kind of like would say, you, you know, your mom and I love you type of thing every once in a while, about once a year, because that's what a boy needs. <laughs> but uh, not demonstrative. And at that moment, I saw my dad get out of the stands, rush to the side, push people out of the way, and cheering like I'm mean, crazy, man, like an Eagles fan crazy, cheering me. And at that point, it didn't matter whether I won or lost. I won. But here's the deal. The next match, I lost. Didn't win the tournament. And I had lots of wins and losses and lots of academics wins and losses and lots of things. But that one stands out in my mind. Why? Because the man who meant so much to me cheered for me. Like I knew at that moment that my father was pleased with me. What are the things 
that you can't forget, like you want to forget, you wish you could take them out of your memory, but they haunt you, they just drag with you. Without going into details, I'm sure you can all think of a laundry list of times when your parents said something to you that you can't forget. When someone that you loved rejected you. When someone that you honored dismissed you. We see this theme as you go through life the things that shape our souls, the things that make us who we are, the things that we carry with us forever. It's not the wins and losses in life. It's the approval of the people who matter most. And it's the fear of rejection that shapes us, that we can't shake, that it, we carry with, it, with us from, from birth until death. I will always remember that moment. Exactly. So this past summer, uh, there was a, a, a collection of sketches by Leonardo da Vinci that traveled the world. And in that, this was uh, anatomical sketches. And I don't know if you know this story. Uh, early 1500s, Leonardo da Vinci, he, uh, the story goes that he was in Santa Maria Nuevo or something like that. I don't know Italian. Uh, that hospital, though, that famous hospital in Florence, he's sitting there and there's this older gentleman who's over 100 years old who's living in perfect health. And, uh, and Leonardo's sitting there talking to him. And one day, in perfect health, he just died. And Leonardo was like, that was the sweetest death I've ever seen. And so you know what he did? He said, I must dissect him. I must look into his life. I must see, like, what is it that someone could live such a sweet life and die such a sweet death? So he literally went to the morgue and took the cadaver and cut it open and dissected it. And that's one of many dissections that he's famous. At the time, it was actually illegal. He had to do this in secret. But he was so interested in what makes a person live and die that well. And so I wonder, if we were to take our lives, if you could actually dissect someone's soul, not just their body, if you would cut in and you would look at their memories and all the, all the things that connect them, all the, all, separate the, the passions from the rationality, separate the scar tissue from that which is whole and complete. If we were to look at how approval and fear of rejection, how those things factor in and form our souls... What would we find? I have found, at a very superficial level, I found young women willing to denigrate and objectify themselves in horrific ways for the approval of a young man. I've seen young men give up their entire lives, live as slaves, to win the approval of a father or a coach. I've seen millions of Americans who are willing to take on a crushing debt just to be approved by their neighbors. I've seen professionals, men and women, ignore their families, let their health be destroyed so that they can win the approval of a boss. What, what is this? Why? Why is this, this approval, this fear of rejection, why does this run so deep in us? What, what's going on here? And the scriptures, they speak to it. 
In fact, if you read through the scriptures, this theme is everywhere. But you might not know it because it doesn't use our language. Believe it or not, they were not schooled in modern psychology. These guys didn't know about approval and rejection and self-esteem. No, they used a different word to describe what it means to be approved. They used the word righteousness. That at the root of what we need in our lives, that to, to live a sweet life and die a sweet death, what we need, if you were to rip apart the human soul, the human soul that is complete is going to be a human soul that knows one thing for certain, that I am approved by God. That my heavenly father looks at me and says, that's my son, and cheers me. That I am accepted and not rejected. And that I can't lose that approval. That as much as our lungs need oxygen and our eyes need light, we need God's approval. Today, Jesus tells us a story, a parable, a little story about two men who have two very different approaches. They're very different men with very different approaches seeking the exact same thing, God's approval. One succeeds and one does not. Luke chapter 18. We're going to start today in verse 10 though. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 10. It says this. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So two guys show up to the temple. The, the temple. And this is the place where people come to meet God. This is the place where, where things die so that you can have God's approval, right? Sacrifices. This is the place where God's presence is on earth. This is the place where we experience in some special way, like a almost tangible presence of the Lord. That behind the gates, up the stairs, through the courtyards into the, the massive doors, beyond the holy place, in, be, behind the giant massive curtains, in that place, between the cherubim, sits a box. A special box. We call it the Ark of the Covenant. And in that box is the Ten Commandments. It is the standard. It is God's Standard for what he expects from his people. That the man or woman who wants to be approved by God must live those out completely, perfectly from the heart. And, and above that box is this place between the cherubim, is this place, is the most holy place. We call it the Hilastrion. I can translate it for you, but it, there's no quite equal in English. The halastrion is sometimes called the mercy seat. It's sometimes called just the place of atonement. Sometimes called the propitiation. That's a great word. That that place is the place where heaven and earth meet. Where God's holy presence is made manifest. That once a year, the, the high priest would come in with a, a blameless and unblemished sacrifice. And he would sprinkle the blood on the ho most holy place, on the Helastrion, asking God to accept the sacrifice on behalf of the people. That this 
innocent one should die so that we might live and know that we have the approval of God. So two men, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, they show up to this place. And and you don't have to read any further than verse 10 to know this. That if you know what a Pharisee is, you know that the Pharisee is the hero of this text. Pharisees of Jesus' day, they're this religious group of heroic followers of God's law. Not only the Ten Commandments, but 603 commandments on top of that of the Old Testament. There were 613 commandments in the Old Testament. And what did they do? They followed the rules. That's what a Pharisee does. This guy early on in life would have made the hard choice that he is going to set aside everything that he wants to pursue and he's going to single-mindedly pursue God's law. That he's going to obey every single one. This guy early on in life would have made the hard decision that he's going to give up popularity and fame and money and all of that. He is just going to seek God. He's going to do whatever it takes to win God's approval. And this just wasn't some type of personal quest. You think of of today, we think of religion as something very personal, something very private. We think of some guy going off to a monastery so that he can find God. But this wasn't just about him. And that day, the reason a Pharisee would do this was, was something national, was something political. That he would do this in hopes that he could be good enough... That God would be so impressed with his good works and his overabundance of righteousness that he would then bless not only him but the entire nation. The logic went something like this. That that God blesses good people and he curses bad people. Right? Something to that. And so this guy, what his goal was, is if we could just turn the tide, if if I could do enough good stuff, then God would have to bless the entire nation, that the entire nation would be free from oppression, free from poverty, free from injustice. If I could just be good enough. So everyone saw that Pharisee and they cheered him on. You're doing the right thing. And it would have made a difference. But there's another guy there too. So let's look at the Pharisee's prayer. Verse 11, it says this. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give tithes of all that I get. God, I keep your Ten Commandments. Number eight on that list, thou shalt not steal. I keep that one. Number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. That one too. I I tithe. You ask for 10% of all that I get. I do that. And you know what, God? I'm so good that I even do some things you don't ask me to do. I fast twice a week. God asks them to fast once a year. I fast twice a week. Do do you understand? This is the whole point is that he went over and above to super impress God. That he has this super abundance of good works so that God will have to approve him. God will have to bless not only him, but the nation of Israel. Now, if you're a first century Jew and you're at the temple and you see this guy praying and you hear that, you'd have to be like, wow, this guy's awesome. Like we are all, if if we could just get enough people like this guy, God has to bless all of us. But again, the problem comes up that there's another guy in the picture. 
Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Oh, please. Like, if you know anything about tax collectors, you know this prayer seems ridiculous. Like, the very fact that this guy is even here is, is offensive. That according to the law, the oral law, tax collectors were not allowed into parts of temple worship. There's a good chance if he's close enough that he might actually be breaking the law by just being present. Tax collectors, Samaritans, and murderers were not allowed into temple worship. This guy can't even look up towards God because he knows. He knows that he's not just a guy who's made a few mistakes. But he's a guy who is a sinner. Something interesting here that the last line, God be merciful to me, a sinner. In the Greek, they don't translate this because it just doesn't sound right. But it literally uses, it uses the definite article. You know, the. He says, God be merciful to me, the sinner. As though he's the only one. It's like, you know, if I were to ask you, hey, are you going to watch the game today? The game. Like, if you have to ask which one, you obviously don't know how significant it is. It's the only game that matters. Cowboys, Giants. Right? This guy is the sinner. Like, he's a tax collector. Do you know that they're not only famous for thieving and for corruption, for stealing? That's not the bad part. The bad part is this that they support the Roman government that oppresses your people, that rapes your daughters, that corrupts your young men. Like, he's a traitor. And here he is, acting like he's welcome at our temple. His very presence is offensive. It's like. Madonna singing at a purity rally. Rush Limbaugh speaking at a democratic convention. This is like showing up to like a vegan potluck with a big platter of veal steaks. Tofu, lentil, tortured baby cow. Like it just, it doesn't work. He shouldn't be there. He shouldn't be there. This man is responsible for your daughters being raped, your sons leaving the faith, and your nation being oppressed. How dare he think that God would hear his prayers? But here's the thing. This isn't our story. This is Jesus' story. Jesus hears both these prayers, and look at what he says. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, declared righteous. Declared by God to be approved rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Like what what just happened here? In what reality do tax collectors walk away clean when the Pharisees, who devotes his whole life to doing good works, in what reality does that happen? And Jesus is going to show us. There's some clues that we need to look at here. This is like a mystery case. How in the world could Jesus come to this? I want you to look at, there's going to be four clues that we're going to see here of why the Pharisee is not declared righteous, not approved by God, and why the tax collector is. Clue number one that I want you to see is this. I want you to look at 
in verse 11, how the Pharisee approaches prayer. It hinges on one little word, a preposition. Let me show you this. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. So if you've ever seen pictures of the temple today, you'll realize that there are still prayer services at the temple, even though it's destroyed. There's one part of the wall that still exists, and you can go to the Wailing Wall today, and you'll see this. This is what a prayer service at the temple looks like. They all have their prayer shawls on, right? So they pray as a group in this one place. Well, here's, here's the deal, though. This guy doesn't. He prays by himself. I thank you that I am not like other men, he says. Why does he pray by himself? Because he is praying out of pride that my prayers aren't like those heathen prayers. My prayers are special. So I want you to see that. That's the first thing, that he comes in with this, this attitude of pride. But, but if, you, if you pick up two or three good translations, we talked about this in How to Study the Bible Course. If you pick up two or three good translations and you look at this exact same text, I want to show you something. You'll find that it's not only translated this way, it's also translated translated like this. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself. Now that's interesting. Maybe, maybe it wasn't all about his pride, but maybe he wasn't praying to God at all. Maybe the reason why his prayer wasn't heard is because he was really reciting his greatness. He was looking in a mirror and saying, you know, you're awesome and you do a lot of good things. And let me tell you, about how good you are. Maybe. But there's another option. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. So maybe he was praying to God, but really the whole prayer was like, God, I just want you to know how awesome I am. Let's go through the list. Should we start with the A's? That's a possibility too. So I I want you to hear this. As, As you listen to his prayer, he says, God, I thank you that I, I, and, and I do this, and I. He refers to himself five times in the first person. Five times. Can you imagine if I wrote a thank you note to, to my wife like this? Dear Jenny, I thank you that I am not like other husbands. I don't punch you in the face, and, and I don't date other women. And I even take you on a date sometimes. Aren't I great? Now, imagine I write that up and I send that to Jenny and I come home that night just expecting for her to be so excited about the note that I gave her. How would she respond? She would punch me in the face. Right? Why? Because I didn't write the note about her. I wrote it about myself. I'm thanking her about myself. Like it doesn't work. So, which of these is it? We have these three choices that they give us. Is, he, is the guy praying by himself? Is he praying to himself? Is he praying about himself? To which, I want you to hear this. Jesus, when we ask this question, he seems to answer, yes. Like this is called, in the scriptures, you'll call, find this, it's called um, a double or triple entendre. Just one of those words you should throw out, sounds smart. Well, that sounds like a triple entendre to me. It means where you, you say one thing and it has two or three meanings that are carried along with it at the same time. So, so John chapter 3, what, which is it? Do I have to be born again or born from above? Jesus says, yes. So which is it? Was the guy praying by himself, to himself, or about himself? And Jesus says, yes. Isn't this brilliant? With one preposition, Jesus tells us everything wrong with his prayer. 
Listen to me. If your approach to God, if your prayers, if your search for approval make you think that you're better than other people, if they leave you looking at yourself and not at God, if they lead you to try and argue and communicate and tell God how great you are, then your prayers are broken and you, my friend, are in trouble. You're not worshiping God, you're worshiping yourself. You're not approved by God, you're self-approved. So how does this guy end up praying such a wrong prayer? And the second clue is this. I want you to look at the list that he prays here. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and on and on he goes. He starts with this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Why in the world would anyone pray to God like that unless, unless that he thought his approval by God was based upon his comparison to other people? Unless he thought the way to be approved by God was to be better than you. I was really bad at calculus. You know, I mean, it's all relative, I guess. For me, I was really bad at calculus. Hated calculus. Barely survived the course. And when I went in, the very first exam I took, like, I was just dreading it. And I I took this exam and then got it back. And I was, like, I was an A student, okay? So I'm, the only comments I'm used to on my papers are, great job. Can you read this, share this with the rest of the class? I mean, that's what I was used to. I give back my first calculus exam, and I promise you the professor had written more on it than I had. And that's a bad sign. <laughs> like, I got a third of the, the solutions wrong, and not just a little wrong, like wrong. And I was just sitting there mortified, like, I'm going to have to drop the class. Like, it's going to ruin my GPA. I'm going to have to start all over again. And then I found out, that my C minus set the curve. And I came up with a whole new strategy. I do not have to learn calculus. I have to beat all of you. That's how I'll get an A. And that's what I did. So, some people think that God evaluates us on a curve. May I suggest to you that many people, maybe most people in our world today, If you ask them, what do you think God thinks of you? Do you have God's approval? Are you a good person? You know, the first thing they're going to say is they're going to say, well, I'm not like Hitler. I'm not like Bin Laden. I'm not a bad person like them. I do a lot of good things. I mean, I recycle and I gave $10 for typhoon relief and I I did some good things and and I, I don't eat, you know, tortured baby cows. Like, I'm a good person. Therefore, God has to approve me. But that's not the standard. God does not grade on a curve. I want you to see this. God's standard is not other people. God's standard for you and for me is himself, his righteousness, his holiness, his love, his perfection, his beauty, his goodness, his truth. It doesn't say be holier than everyone else. It says be holy as I am holy. Leviticus 20 verse 26. Jesus doesn't say be, as, be better than everyone else. He says be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Matthew five forty-eight. God's approval is not a competitive sport. 
Everyone who compares themselves to God loses. Everyone falls short. That's, that's the whole point. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The only possible way you could think you're living up to God's standards is if you minimize them. If you, if you boil God, God's high and exalted and greatness, if you boil that down to a little list of superficial do's and don'ts, well, then you can control it. Then you can think you're meeting the mark. And that's exactly what this Pharisee does. I mean, look at the list. I don't steal. I don't commit adultery. I tithe. I fast. What, what are all these? All of these are simple outward behaviors that can be measured, seen, compared to other people. But if I remember correctly, and I think I do, there are a few other commandments in the Old Testament right alongside those. How about love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? How about love your neighbor as yourself? How about thou shalt not covet don't, don't even envy or desire or want your neighbor's stuff for their life or their success or their wife. What about worship God with all you have and all you are and worship God alone? What about those? Why don't those make the list? I'll tell you why. Because we can't live up to those. When we start measuring the complex inner realities, the heart issues we realize we can't live up to it. Jesus is going to cut through all this nonsense. If, if you remember our study on the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to ask questions like, can, can you never commit adultery and yet be completely controlled by lust? And all the men are like, I, I don't know what he's talking about. What, what? Yes is the answer. Can you tithe 10%? And be completely dominated, crushed, choked by greed. Yes. Can you have the right place in church, the right place in society, the right career, and still be horribly wrong about your relationship with God? Yes. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will actually lay it out. He's going to say, who cares if you give millions of dollars if you do it for yourself? Who cares if you place yourself in the front of the auditorium and you stand up and you fall down and you cry during worship? Who cares if you put on a great show in the worship service if your heart isn't worshiping? Who cares if you perfectly follow the rules and don't have a relationship? The point is this. You can be the best possible person in the world. You can follow all the rules. You can, you can be so much better than everyone else in the world, just like this Pharisee. And not be approved by God. Why? Because God doesn't grade on a curve. God judges you and me according to his holiness and his love, his righteousness. At the end of the day, if, if we stand in the judgment, the, the true judgment of God is this, is that the only prayer that we could possibly pray is God have mercy on me, a sinner. And th this brings us to the prayer, the prayer that is going to, you want to, yeah, I'm going to bring that Bring it on down. I'm, I'm just going to turn this off, Justin. Wow. You know, I'm, I've always wanted to preach in one of these. I'd be like, and the Lord said. You know, this could be fun. Like, I, maybe I need a microphone normally so I can go, ah, yeah. So this is, okay. God have mercy on me. 
I need someone to wipe my brow while I preach. You know those preachers? Those guys are lucky. Okay, enough of this. Let's, let's, let's lay in this plane. There's two more, two more clues. Just hang on a minute. Two more clues, and I, I won't spend a long time on this. Can you hear me? Yeah, okay. Um, two more clues that, that God's going to, the, the text is going to show us about why this prayer is so special. Why even someone like a tax collector could pray this and know that God approves of him. And the first thing I want you to see is this is what we've already pointed out, that he literally calls himself the sinner. That when he comes into the presence of God, no matter how far off he might be, when he judges himself against God, he stops comparing himself to other people. And when you, it's just you and God, it's God and me, the sinner. You see yourself for who you really are. And this is true, that, that this has been true and proven through, throughout Christianity, throughout the history, that the, the Christians who are closest, ironically, the Christians who are most like God, most righteous, are the ones that most see their sinfulness. I don't mean this as a political statement, but I think this is really fascinating. There's an interview a couple weeks ago with uh, the, the new pope. Did you guys hear about this? So here's the question the interviewer asked him. He said, um, who is Jorge Mario Bergoglio, or whatever his name is? Do you guys know? Francis' his name, Pope Francis, his name before that. Who is Jorge? To which the Pope responded, I am a sinner. This is the most accurate definition. It's not a figure of speech, a literary genre. I am a sinner. Now, we could all be like, wait a second. Hey, Francis, Frenchie, come here, old boy. Let's talk about this. I've seen you. Like, you spend your, like, your free time, like, washing prisoners' feet and hugging disfigured men. Like, if you're a sinner, we're all screwed. You're a good guy. Don't say those things about you. But here's the thing. He's not comparing himself to us. He's comparing himself to God. This is why the Apostle Paul will call himself in all seriousness, in all honestness, in all frankness, I'm the worst of all sinners. When God is the standard, I'm the sinner. And and the last clue that I want to point out to you is this. Here's the deal. At this point, if you know that you're the sinner, that's great. I mean, that's important. That's the starting point. But that's only enough to get you damned, not enough to get you saved, right? As those old Baptist preachers used to say, though, first you've got to get a man lost before you can get him saved. How do we get saved? And it's this. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Um, do you guys know, if, how many of you know 80s pop music? 80s pop music? Yeah, okay. So, Mr. Mr., what's the most famous song? That's right. That's right. You got to sing in that falsetto the whole time. Through the road that I've traveled. You guys know what I'm saying? Okay. So, what's the point? That's the normal way of saying it. If you've, if you've attended Mass, if you've gone to a liturgical service, what do you say over and over and over again at communion? Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. Christ, have mercy on me. That's the call. Well, here's the deal. He doesn't say that. You know what he says? God, Helastrion, the sinner. 
Halastrion, mercy seat. You know what's going on in that temple right there? Where, where somehow you accept the blood of a sacrifice on behalf of your people that we don't deserve it at all. And yet you allow a priest to come in and mediate for us that we do not deserve it. You allow an innocent sacrifice to be slaughtered and the blood to be sprinkled on the altar, Lord. Halastrion, Halastrion. That's my only hope. There's no way. If you judge me according to you, there's no way I can come to you. Unless a mediator comes and blood is shed and an innocent sacrifice, an innocent life is lived on my behalf. Jesus says, this man gets it. This man knows who he is. He knows that he can never attain the grace of God, but that it's freely given. I tell you that this man, the sinner, went down to his house justified. The technical definition of justification is to be declared righteous, to be declared approved by God. That Jesus says the person who knows that they are not a sinner but the sinner, that that they're judged not according to how they do with other people, not on a relative scale but on an absolute scale, that when they stand before the Almighty that they don't live up to it, that when they cry out, when they put their trust in one who would come and die on their behalf, they can know for sure that the Father sees them and cheers them, says, this is my son, this is my daughter. I approve of this one. If I believe that God only approves of me when I perform, when I follow the rules then I will never know what my life is really about. I'll always be wondering, am I good enough? Did I live up to God's expectations? I'll start comparing myself to other people. I'll become fixated on myself. If I fail, I'll hate myself. Oh, God doesn't love me. I didn't read my Bible. I didn't tithe. I didn't do this. And if I succeed, I'll become prideful. I'm so good. I'm not like those other guys who who haven't learned how to tithe or how to read their Bible or how to be good. I'm not like them. I don't struggle with those sins anymore. I'm better than them. But the gospel overturns both of this. It overturns our pride and our shame. Because we no longer look at ourselves, but we look to Christ alone to be our helastrion. That our approval from God is not based upon how we behave or what we do. But our approval from God is based upon what Christ did on the cross for us. And when you live in that, then you're free to fail and you're free to succeed. But everything stems up from a heart of worship. It changes you, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Jesus says, if you trust in me, if you believe in the sacrifice I made on the cross, I will be your substitute. And today you can have full confidence that God approves of you. But only if you let go of trying to prove yourself and you accept what he did on your behalf. Pray with me. Father, Father, we... We come to you today, and I know today is full of distractions. Um, 
and yet your word is powerful. And and this story, Lord, I pray that it won't pass over people quickly. God, as people now think through the ways that they've they've sought to win your approval and they've run from you when they feel like they've lost it, Lord, like they're rejected from you, Lord. I pray that all of those things would come to mind, that they could lay those at the feet of the cross and cry out with that sinner that we all are, Lord, Helastrion, that Jesus is the one who can provide approval before God, that he alone is the way to you, the way to know that we're approved. And I pray this in his name. Amen.